from Acts chapter 10. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel spoke, the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven open and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three more times, and then the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of uh, the vision that he had seen. Suddenly, the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down uh, to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Realize that the main character in that story, his name is also Peter. We did not intend that. We just really love his voice and his person. All right, hey everybody, I get to I get to share the teaching this morning, and I'm super excited. I'll also say, just by way of getting going this morning, uh, it is the tail end of summer, so like our kids start school tomorrow. Uh, anybody else have family starting school in the next couple of weeks? And one of the things that happens in the summer is we get used to a different set of people every Sunday because everybody's traveling, everyone is seeing family, or the beach is just very like siren song calling you. And so I'm really excited because uh, I'm getting to see a lot of you that I haven't seen in a little bit. And it's just, it's a joy. Corey said as we were getting ready to come in here for service, it feels like there's some fun energy here. My guess is there's some fun energy here because y'all are here. So thanks for being here. 
Um, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 10. We're looking at this story. This story is insane. I feel like I've become so used to, and, and some of you have too if you grew up in church for any length of time, you get used to the, uh, like the big stories in the Bible, and they become so familiar, like well-worn, slick over time, that you can forget, I can forget that these are crazy stories. This is one of those stories that is so deeply unsettling. Uh, in fact, would have never happened had God not like lit a fuse and really like gotten this energy in motion. Um, but first, I want to start with this question I always ask to parents of multiple children. I have this question I ask, and it's not a question I ever want to get a serious answer to. And in fact, if I got a serious answer to it, then we would have to have follow-up conversation. Uh, but if you have more than one kid, and at some point we've talked, I've asked you this question, uh, which is, which one's your favorite? Of your kids. Uh, Alright, raise your hand if you've got multiple children in your life. And raise your hand if you've got a favorite. <laughs> We've got a few hands still up. I love your honesty. You can put your hands down so no one sees you. <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to pick favorites, right? Now, uh, depending on what the day has been like or the week has been like. I always, uh, Judah, do you feel like we have favorites? Don't answer that question. My kid's up here. Ruthie's in the back. Um, but you're not supposed to have favorites if you're a parent. You're supposed to love all of your children the same. You don't like them all the same at all the right times. But you're supposed to love them the same. You're not supposed to have a favorite. However, and I didn't think that my... I have a brother. He's a little younger than me. I never thought that uh, explicitly my parents had a favorite kid. But I grew up with a brother, with a sibling. And so for various reasons at various times, we would enter into friendly competitions. Right? If you have a sibling uh, or a close like cousin or something, you may have had this experience where you're sort of pitted against one another and probably the first competition was just a good old-fashioned foot race. If your uh, guardians were really ambitious, then maybe it was like a good old-fashioned like crawling race. I don't know how quickly sibling rivalries begin. Uh, but yeah, you have this, this sibling foot race. And the race is not just to figure out who's the fastest. Right, if you're the kid, what's the race about? It's about, it's not even just about winning, it's, it's about dad's approval. Right, you assume that if you can run faster than your siblings, then whoever has sent you on that race is, uh, is keeping score. This is like lodged deep in our six-year-old brain, and we all kind of carry that six-year-old brain around with us. And it's not exactly just our parents' approval that we're after in the race. It's this, like, sense of secure love. If you just want to continue to kind of build this thing out. It takes a little bit of time for kids to grow up. And if you've got parents who are stable, functioning, to trust that they love you and they love your siblings, and the, the love for them is not diminished their love for you. That in fact, love has this kind of generous exponential quality to it. It grows as the need arises. But when you're younger, and you see this all the time, right? Like, I'm sure, Blake, you've thought about with Lincoln, when baby gets here, like, what's Lincoln going to do? How's Lincoln going to handle sharing mom and dad? And of course, Lincoln's going to have to figure it out. He's a cool kid, but at some point, he's going to get jealous, and assume that mom and dad can't love him and another person at the right amounts. It's going to create a crisis, and y'all are going to have a lot of fun parenting through that. And uh, you'll get the gray hair that we've all gotten and, and all of those sort of things. 
Most of the uh, book of Genesis is about this. It's about sibling foot races and trying to figure out who mom and dad and the God knows mom and dad love the most. It's just sibling rivalry after, after sibling rivalry. Today's story is, is a little bit about that. About this thing that we all do, which is assume that someone is keeping score and that it's our job to make sure that our scorecard is filled to the right amount so that we get on the inside and not on the outside. When we think about the early church and we think about this story in the book of Acts, a lot of times, again, the understanding I've brought to it is that this is a story of other people outside of the faith coming into the faith. So, like, look at all of these people who are being saved. Uh, you've got the disciples, you've got these early followers of Jesus, and they know the story, and they are kind of on the inside of this Jesus movement known as the way. But there are all of these other people that don't yet know, and so they go out and they preach. It says that they preach in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and Samaria, and then off into the ends of the earth. We met the story of the eunuch, that was like the ends of the earth story. And uh, there is this sense that these outsiders are being brought in to God's family. And that is partly true. But also, this is happening. Those insiders are consistently being saved themselves, converted again and again into a deeper understanding of what God is doing. This is super important for us. You all chose to be here this morning, which means the vast majority of you have some kind of resonance with the Jesus story. That you are compelled by it, you may not fully understand it, but we are in fact in a church, and so uh, our church is built up, like foundation, we talk about this as Christ at our center. So there's something that's resonating with you about that story. Different levels for different people, different experiences, different maturities, right? Okay. Uh, but being here, none of us should think, and I, I hope we don't, that we have arrived that we are done being saved. In fact, that sense of kind of closed down belief, static. It's the language in the New Testament is like dead water. We're invited into an experience of living water, which is always moving and flowing. And it is, it is open to what God is doing in the future. This is a story not just about Cornelius finding a way into God's family, but Peter finding a new way to be in God's family as well. This is partly our own conversion along the way. And the story arrives to us with this, uh, this trance that happens. So you heard the reading from Peter that uh, Peter, not this Peter, but the Peter in here. Oh, this is going to get confusing. You can't ever read a story whenever the main character's name is Peter again. This is, this is not going to work. If you've got a book, a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 10. You heard this story. There are these two scenes. This happens a lot in the Bible where the storytellers, and they are brilliant, they sort of put these two scenes uh, and they build them up together. And then over time of building them up, at some point they intersect and then they collide. This is one of those stories. So you've got Peter and these like, disciples, these early followers of Jesus on one side of the scene. And then you've got Cornelius and, and God on this other side of the scene. And if you know enough about like the Hebrew scriptures or about uh, Judaism at the time or anything that we've talked about in here, you know that these two scenes are distinct on purpose. Like they're not supposed to interact with one another. Peter and these early followers, they're trying to figure out how to be uh, Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
That is what it would have meant at the end of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to follow after Jesus. That this Jesus is fulfilling what we would call the law or the Torah, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. That's this group over here. And they are known in Judaism for distinctiveness, for being set apart. It's like part of what the word holy even means. It's a lot of the laws you get in things like Leviticus and Deuteronomy is how do you create a community that stands in some kind of distinction to the larger world. That's this group over here. And then you've got this centurion Cornelius, which means he's a Roman. It means he's a fighter. It means he likely, centurion is a leader over like 100 people. This is distinctly not Israel. It's about as not Israel as you can get. In fact, in most people's telling, it's the enemy of Israel. So already you've got these scenes set that should come into some kind of conflict. Cornelius is over here. And Peter gets hungry. Like so hungry that he goes up on the roof and he's praying. His hunger pains are sort of eating away at him. And he falls into a trance. Because whatever God is about to show him is not the kind of thing that you or I are going to learn by just trying to open our eyes wider and hope for some new revelation. God intercedes in this story. And whatever sort of faculties we bring to uh, to knowledge gathering and understandings, like we have to enter into some other kind of state to get the new thing God is doing. So Peter falls into a trance and he sees a vision. I don't know what trance means in this story. Did he pass out? Did he just fall asleep and have a dream? Whatever it is, he sees something that was impossible to see when he's in his right mind. He sees this sheet let down from heaven. And in his hunger, he's craving some food. But on the sheet are all kinds of things you are allowed to eat and things that you are not allowed to eat. So what we would call like clean animals or kosher and things that are unclean or impure or defiled. And he gets this command. You can see it right here. Voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, who loves to rebut the Lord and loves to rebut Jesus, has a comeback for it. Like, absolutely not. I've never done anything like that in my life. I've worked really hard, really hard, to never be able to be accused of breaking any of the old rules. So no thank you, I'll wait till they cook my food downstairs. It's like three times this happens. Just, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. You're hungry. He says, no, get up, kill. And then he comes out of this trance. He doesn't know what it means. And then at that moment... These delegates of the centurion show up at Peter's house and invite these two stories to come together. Now, here's the problem, and we don't have enough time today to talk about why this is a broken metaphor, but there's something happening in this story about the eating that if we take our modern eyes and we try to look at it, we're just not, we're not going to see it. Because for me and for most of you, unless you... Does anyone own chickens in here and use those chickens for food or for eggs? Not many of us. Uh, Me either. So I have like a deep disconnect with where my food comes from. That was not the case back when this story was written. There was this intimate connection with what you ate. It puts you in a community of life, of flow, of creation... Eating was never an an amoral act. You could eat with an awareness and an appreciation 
And you see this appreciation deeply developed in like indigenous peoples. Native peoples in this country had this other sense of what food was for. And the life that gave food, what it meant. But we carry into these conversations a very mechanistic understanding of the non-human world. Namely that everything else that's not us is for our consumption, our betterment, our taking. And so even when we hear God say, or this voice say to Peter, take, kill, and eat, we think, absolutely, of course we can kill and eat whatever we want. We are humans after all. That's how we make use of creation. This is a dangerous logic. And in fact, uh, we've been spending some time as a board back with our kind of core principles as a church. And one of these core principles is around uh, stewarding creation well, that we have an awareness that we are in this kind of web of relationships. And so I'm going to ask if you would bring that understanding into the scripture, this web of relationships. It's the only way we're going to understand the scandal of what this voice is telling Peter to do. So this is the old way and the more common way that it's understood that humans are in a relationship with God. Namely, that like all of us, because we are uh, made in the image of God, that we have a relationship to God that can like be mediated one to one. This sort of intimate, personal, you can describe it in different ways. Uh, but that there is this other non-human part of creation that is sort of off in the sidelines. And we can pull it into conversation with our faith if we need to, like if it's time to sacrifice on the altar. But otherwise, our relationship is with God. And then that which is not human is just kind of out here for our use. Dominionism is the fancy word for this understanding of the world. And it's super dangerous. But it is insanely prevalent. Uh, there are these images that I carry around with me and there's this image I'm going to show you that I've carried around with me for about 15 years just kind of sits at the core of my own theology and it's the the correcting of this image uh, which is this it's like really simple but what it's saying here is that God has a relationship with us but God has a relationship with that which is not us that is not dependent on us. This is a humbling way to understand our place in creation. But it is the biblical one. For instance, there are these stories that the prophets tell of when uh, God's kingdom is ushered in, like Isaiah talks about whenever the captives are brought back from exile and this sadness period is turned into joy. And one of the ways that the, the prophet talks about this is that as Israel is entering back into belonging... There are these like bits of nature lining the way. It says that the trees, they clap their hands as Israel enters back into joy. Somehow the trees know something about what God is up to. Because God, in fact, has a relationship with them. We have our own relationship with, with creation. Right? This is all, this kind of, I mean, you can see a lot of things. You can see Trinity here. You can see relationality here. You can see humility in this kind of picture. Now, there's another version of this. And this story that's being told in Acts 10 is telling these two versions at the same time. Right? So Peter's having this vision of food. And this vision that there are foods that he thought were off limits that now God is saying you can take inside of you. And this gets to our new understanding of food. When you eat, you are participating in this great relationship of creation that God has given us. And to eat with awareness is a sacred act. I mean, it's part of why at the center of our faith is communion, where aware eating is really important. But to eat without awareness, to eat frivolously, without gratitude, 
Wendell Berry says, is itself a desecration. It takes that which God has called sacred, which is in fact all things, and it says, no, this actually is outside of God's purview and interest. So when God says, this voice says, take, kill, and eat all of these things, what the voice is doing is inviting Peter into a relational understanding of the world that is much bigger than the one he had. That Peter can belong to this expansive community understood in eating. He doesn't know what this means, though. Right? He wakes up and he's greatly puzzled. Here's the other picture that you carry along with you in that triangle of God, of humanity, and of creation, or, or the animals, is this one of God and Israel. There is this sense that God has a distinct relationship to Israel. And that this is the only important relationship God has in the world for the longest time, right? The entire Old Testament witnesses to this relationship. And then there are all these people who are not Israel, known as the nations, And the nations always seem to kind of be at war with or in struggle with Israel. So what you could think is that God's interest is in this one people and that there is this utilitarian purpose for all other tribes, nations, and civilizations. Again, this is a common tendency. You could have written up here, God and the church and then all who are not part of the church and make an assumption that God is only in communion with certain kinds of people. But again, you know where this is going. This is the picture that's actually the deeper truth that the Bible shows us, which is that God is in community with all of creation. There's this point in, uh, we saw it last week, where these early disciples find communities who are not specifically Israel, but they seem to be keyed into something about the divine. Cornelius represents this here. Somehow Cornelius is God-fearing and he is keeping the laws. There's something about his character that speaks to God's character and God notices it. God says that these prayers rise up too. Not just your prayers, but these prayers, they rise up too as a memorial, as a witness to God's actions in the world. Inside of both of these new understandings is this reality that eating is itself a kind of joining. And so when Peter says, I've never and I never will, it is partly a sense of righteousness, but it is also partly a sense of boundaries of what Peter says he could never belong to. What does Jesus get in trouble for in the Gospels over and over again if not eating with the wrong people? And the problem with eating with the wrong people is that you might get associated with those kinds of people. And this little quote under here you should recognize from the words we use in communion. Jesus invites us into another kind of eating that is itself a kind of joining. And if what we're following after, who we're following after, is the risen Christ, then we're going to have to go where Jesus goes. And Jesus goes to places that are going to mess with our reputations and our sense of boundaries, of identity, who's in and who's out. Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. All the pieces to this story, by the way, have been here all along. It's just the imagination of what God is up to in the world is always more narrow than what God is actually doing in time and in space. 
This is true now as it was true then. And the reason I know this is because when I read the line that's coming up, I didn't feel very good. This is the image of what was being invited into. This sense of a circle, and I'm borrowing this from Father Greg Boyle from Homeboy Industries, has this line about, imagine the circle of compassion, of care, of who you allow in your group, and now imagine no one standing outside that circle. That's his kind of mission and thesis statement for Homeboy Industries, that there are folks in our society who are tossed aside, and Jesus goes to them, and by going to them, expands the circle of belonging to include even them. There's no way that Peter thought the circle was big enough to include Cornelius. There's just no way. He's a centurion. He's not a Jew. He's likely presided over crucifixions and such. Like, right, this doesn't work like this. And yet, this is the picture of what God is inviting us into. Peter says, as they have their conversation a little bit later, and this is like the thesis statement for today, Peter speaks to them. Finally, Peter and Cornelius meet. And there's this invitation for Peter to share. And Peter's blown away that he even has a chance to share, much less what this might mean. But he's starting to put the pieces together. And he says, this is verse 34 of chapter 10. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. Man, how does this feel to you? This didn't feel like good news to me when I read it. And in fact, it still barely feels like good news to me if I'm being honest with you, because I have been practicing being good. I have been practicing keeping the rules, policing the boundaries. Like no partiality? How about just like less partiality? You know what I mean? Like let's, let's just, let's, let's be honest. I remember giving a version of this sermon when I was at, in grad school at Duke. And uh, Duke's like any good uh, university and seminary where we all are for sure that we've got the right answers to everything. And so we all get together in chapel and we think like, can't, we can't wait to share the answers that we all know together. And then we can all get our gold stars from God and our professors. And then we can go serve churches, right? Like so it's the best way to prepare for a life of service is deep, deep pride and self-assuredness. But that's what we do in seminary. And uh, I remember thinking and praying as I was getting ready to preach and thought, oh, I know exactly who God's ready to smite. And I I can tell them. It's all the folks who are like what, bigoted or prejudiced or or, uh, like oppressing the poor or racially motivated. Like we know all the things. And if I asked you like, yeah, that's wrong. Y'all be like, that's wrong. Those people are wrong. And we know them. I know them and you know them. So what does it mean if God shows no partiality? Uh, There are people that I do not think belong. But this is what Peter realizes. And yes, Cornelius is God-fearing, and yes, he's demonstrating righteousness, but he is also an agent of empire with control over weapons and the power of death. Like, he is deeply complicit as well as Cornelius is complex. And so is everyone that we meet. God shows no partiality. This is the good news. But I promise 
for those of us who feel already inside the story, this like boundless nature of God's grace and God's compassion is at times met, if we're being honest, with a sense of letdown. Like, what are we trying so hard for if God shows no partiality? And this is the message that Peter receives. God is making no distinctions. But we can't help but make distinctions. It's just the way we are. Like, I meet somebody and I think, are you going to be safe or are you going to be scary? And it takes me, with, with Ted Perlman, it took me at least three weeks to figure the answer out to that question. Safe or scary? Uh, it's taken y'all at least two years to figure that out about me, if you're even there yet. But we do this all the time. It's the way that we sense out who is part of our group or who is not part of our group. And it doesn't always have to be, like, deeply prejudiced. We just are looking for patterns and making meaning out of those patterns. But at times, it slips into something that is much closer to oppressive understandings of people who are not us and who maybe don't belong. God hedges against this all of the time in the Old Testament. Because even as he's calling Israel out into a distinctive place, this sort of elevated relationship with God, God warns them over and over again that this doesn't make you special in a way that obviates justice. You are, you are also bound by God shows no partiality. It stands at the core of their understanding of justice in the judicial system. Right? Like there will come a point when you can oppress the poor because the poor are really easy to oppress. Just go ask somebody who doesn't have a lot of money how easy it is to get justice. Or ask somebody who has a lot of money when the last time was they served jail time. Right? That's just the way that it's always worked, and God knows this. This shows up all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament. There's this one part in Exodus 23 that talks about, like, don't follow the words of the crowd and the majority when you seek out your rulings. Follow justice. Don't follow out the voice of the many. And then it, it dovetails off after this into, also, by the way, if you've got a resident alien in your midst, if you've got an immigrant, if you've got somebody who is without papers, uh, careful how you treat them. Because you used to be aliens in Egypt. Right? It's the other core part of their understanding that they used to not belong. So that they are themselves elevated as a nation, but that they used to be the ones under the boot. Both of these are part of their history. Jesus fulfills both of these roles in this understanding and brings it to its conclusion, which is that you are called out to be special to call others out. Uh, Tony Morrison, who died this week, is known for saying, like, the freedom you have is so that you can free other people. This is the invitation that the voice is offering to Peter. This is the word for partiality. It's a really long Greek word. Uh, but what it means is, or at least my best understanding of its definition is something like celebrity culture. Uh, it is literally like to receive or to take notice of the face. But not exactly the face, but the mask that you would have worn in the theater. Similar to like where we get the word for hypocrite from. Folks who play a part in a stage production. Uh, this is like the way that we live in our country right now, is with masks, with our brand, with whatever it might be. We do it all of the time. I, again, I'm just going to keep indicting myself this morning. Is that okay with you? I do it all the time. For instance, this morning, I didn't have these shoes on. I had different shoes on. Uh, these are, these are Tevas. This is like what Jesus wore. Teva sandals. Uh, but I had brought with me what Ruthie called affectionately my fancy shoes, my boots, and I, uh, I told Michael, who's in the back in our AV booth, I said, uh, 
these are, I'm not, I wish I could wear these shoes this morning because it's so hot right now in church, but I got to wear my fancy shoes. Why do I have to wear my fancy shoes? Well, because I want y'all to really see me as a pastor. And you may not see me as a pastor if I wear my, my open-toed shoes. You can tell that like I have cuts on my, I have a band-aid on my little toe. Like that's not very professional. I got to put my mask on so that you all see me the way I want you to see me. And and God might even see my toes on Sunday morning. And that would be a big problem if God saw my... You see, this happens all of the time. Now, when I told Michael this, I was like, this is what I'm preaching on. He goes, you've got to wear those flip-flops. And I said, these sandals, I was like, really? He goes, if you don't, it just means that you have a loose understanding of your own identity. (laughs) Michael's also a therapist. So when a therapist says something like that to you, it's like a big deal. So, uh, so this is me standing in my truth right here, right here this morning. Uh, this always happens though. This need to wear a mask, to impress, to be accepted. Ask somebody who is non-white living in dominant white spaces, the kind of code switching that happens just to be accepted by dominant culture. How dangerous it can be to have to keep putting that thing on. I mean, part of what is being revealed here is that we can just be ourselves as God has made us to be. And we talked a few weeks ago about the eunuch. Like, that's the story that God is telling, is that God has made us in a way that God delights in. And a lot of the lines that we have drawn are just not that interesting to God. It is not the way things are right now in our country, and I'm really sorry for that. And I'll also say that the roots of some of our like deepest wounds around race have been at times supported and undergirded by bad understandings of theology. That like God and God's people and everyone else, right? That's part of it too. We have folks in our congregation who, who don't feel safe to come gather in public spaces because who they are is drawn the eye and the ire of others. It's not, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Like, of course it's not the way it's supposed to be, but it's just the way that it is. So what is being offered by this voice from God is for Peter to wake up and to see Cornelius, the centurion, as God sees him. Even as he's telling the story, the spirit rushes and fills these new believers. And they are baptized. It's like nothing can stop it. It's this overwhelming force. Again, this isn't a new story, but it is the old story fulfilled. Lest we think, and this is the danger in reading the book of Acts, that, oh, God has shown up to God's people, the church. And now we can take the place of Israel. Like that's also not what's happening in this story. You can see hints of this in the way Jesus constitutes his own followers. At the time, there were all these rival groups in Judaism. I just pulled two out, the Sadducees and the Zealots. And Jesus puts them into community with one another and says, you belong to this family. The Sadducees would have been known as the like collaborators with Rome, um, tax collectors and those sort of folks. They've kind of made a double deal, both with the temple and with the state. Uh, and so they were really hated by the deeply pure, which would have been known as the Zealots. These are like the folks who were insurrectionists. 
anarchists, violent even, to purify Israel. And yet these two types of people are all found in Jesus' disciples. Tax collectors, zealots, Judas was likely a zealot. Jesus finds a way to put them together and say, you both belong. There is no distinction or preference or favoritism being shown here. They don't get it though, right? What do they ask a little bit later? Like, Jesus is predicting his death and says, like, the son of man's going to die, he's going to be tortured, he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise again. And the next question the disciples ask is what? Well, who's going to get the best seats in the house? Who's going to get to sit at your right and your left? You can feel those old ways of understanding the world at, at play, even at the center of Christ's community known as the disciples. So of course that we would sometimes feel this way. Jesus says to them, like, that's how the rest of the world lives. That certain folks rule and certain folks are ruled. But if you want to be close to God, then you're going to have to serve rather than be served. That's the message that Jesus gives these disciples. Underneath the fear that Peter has of eating that which is unclean, and underneath the fear that we have always had, with believing deeply that God shows no partiality, is this question of how will people tell us apart if we don't distinguish ourselves in all of these ways? Like this is often at the root of some understandings of purity culture. Someone earlier in the back said that uh, it's kind of commonly known that Christians are going to be known for their love, not for their ability to draw really clean lines around who is in and who is out, but they're going to be known by this kind of boundless compassion. What we find in this story is what I continually find the more and more I lean into God's spirit, which is that God's kingdom is really, really complex. It is complicated, it's full of paradox and contradictions, it's full of people who would never get along anywhere else but in this space, it's full of upside down understandings of power and of salvation and of grace and of enough versus scarce, everything is complicated. We do crave simplicity, simple answers, just tell me what the answer is on the test so I can get the grade and move on. But the the invitation is to a deepening, a deepening understanding of what God is calling us to. And what Peter finds, what these early Christians find, is that their encounter with God's spirit is this, like, it's just this deepening. And each move takes another level of humility. That what you thought you knew is just an approximation of the truth that God is revealing in this moment. Y'all are very complex. Like, I could just pick out this row right here and draw a little circle, and there would be all kinds of difference and all kinds of different opinions. And if I asked each of you, how are we going to solve homelessness? You'd be like, well, I know, and I know, and I know, and I have no idea. Right? We are complex. What does your family look like back there? And what does your family look like over there? Is it the same? Is it two kids in a white picket fence? Probably not. It's all kinds of things. God's kingdom is never, has never been reducible to a type. 
other thing that we find in this story is this follow-up. This is what I'll end with. Some of the folks who weren't in this story, some of the other followers of Jesus hear that Peter has been fraternizing with a centurion, and they are confused, to say the least. They're probably about to pull his ordination papers. Just don't do that. So he tells them the story of what's happened. Tells them the story of the vision, tells them the story of meeting with this uh, centurion and says, the spirit told me to go with them and to not make a distinction between them and us, which is like often the core of religious experience, distinctions between them and us. If God gave them the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the question, who am I that I could hinder God? This is the question I want to leave you with. Because when he asks it, they fall silent and are amazed. Then after silence, they praise. Who am I that I could hinder God? What I see at work in this story is what I see at work in the world. What I see at work in this congregation on the days when we truly believe it. Which is that God's spirit is, is moving and active. And a lot of the time, our job is to just like settle down, embrace humility, and step into the flow of what God is doing. It means we have to let go of certain assurances, let go of certain anchors, and trust that God is with us. It seems... That God craves relationship. Just like Peter was craving food. And God's hunger and thirst for intimacy knows no bounds. I don't want to get in the way of God's love moving toward people. God's invitation and compassion, this circle of belonging. And I don't believe you do either. Sometimes the answer to the call of faith is just to relent of what we think we know is best and to trust that God is moving. And who would we be to hinder that movement? I'm going to ask if the worship team would come up as we enter into a time of prayer together. At the center of our community here is the resurrected Christ. We have one common confession of faith, which is that Jesus is Lord. And our goal as a congregation is to make that more and more true in each of our lives over time. The song we're going to sing here is an older song, a hymn called the church's one foundation. It's Jesus Christ our Lord is the first line. And if that is true, then can we follow this Christ where he's already gone into homes that we think are off limits, 
into relationships that would scandalize us. Into the folks that we think are outside of God's love and compassion. To deeply believe that God shows no favoritism. God loves all of God's children. Would you pray with me? God, who are we to hinder you? Your spirit and your movement. Give us a humility to trust, to let go, and also that we would fall into your embrace. We would feel ourselves caught. Know that your love is not contained just at our own person, but extends out throughout all creation. Give us a sense of kinship so that those who are in your care would be seen by us as in your care. That they are already with you. We pray all of this in the resurrected name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.